Welcome back to Conflicted with me, Thomas Small. And me, Eamon Dean. This is the second episode of our Titanic series exploring the history of Yemen and to help us on our way. I'm thrilled to say that back again, we have our very special guest and our very good friend, Bara Shaiban. Welcome back, Bara. So glad to be back and can't wait to explain the rest of how the Titanic hit the iceberg. (laughs) (laughs) Yemen, the great Titanic of the Middle East. Now, last time we explored Yemen up to the year 1990, and we looked at, well, the many Yemens, or let's say the two Yemens, the traditionally Zaidi-dominated North and the more recently communist-dominated South. Uh, When we left them, they had just been joined together under the rule of a man who will be playing a crucial role in today's story, Ali Abdullah Saleh. And this week, we're going to see if Ali Abdullah Saleh can hold both Yemens together in the following decades. How would he do it? Eamon, let's let Ali Abdullah Saleh's words speak for themselves. How did he say he was going to keep the two Yemens together? Well, he said he can keep the two Yemens together by perfecting the art of dancing on the heads of snakes. Dancing on the heads of snakes. That's the art of governing Yemen. We're going to find out how he did it, how well he did it. (laughs) Let's jump right back into it. Right, Bara, nice to see you again. I'm doubly glad that you're with us uh, on this second episode of our epic series, because now in this episode, we're gonna begin to take advantage of your eyewitness experience of many of the important events that have occurred in Yemen over the last, well, 40 years, say. We're building up a picture of Yemen. We're we're laying the, the pieces on the chessboard as we sort of move ever closer to the civil war there. Uh, and so you will be able to provide us some some firsthand uh, accounts of things you you witnessed in Yemen as the Houthi movement rose and uh, as the regime of Ali Abdullah Saleh began to be rattled. Yeah, I mean, those are the years that I was in school, but I was pretty much aware of what was happening in the north of Yemen. Me coming from Sana'a and being a member of a Hashemite family, but also having a growing interest in politics and the details of the politics of Yemen. Well, when we last left Yemen, there had been a big political (laughs) earthquake there when the two countries, North Yemen and South Yemen, were finally united. They were unified uh, in 1990. No doubt it would last forever. (laughs) I wonder, Barat, do you think in 1990 that anyone who knew Yemen would have thought that this experiment of unification was going to last? The emotions were very high, mainly, of course, positive emotions. And people in jubilation literally went out to the streets celebrating this unification, believing that this is only the beginning of really good times ahead. So for the first time, political parties were allowed to be formed. So we no longer have just a one ruling party. Elections were set to happen in 1993. Newspapers, magazines of all the political stream were allowed to be sold in the street. So the overall environment was basically an environment of celebration and happiness and people only seeing promising days ahead. Barat, remind the listener who Ali Abdullah Saleh 
was. I mean, we know he was the president of Yemen. He, as you told us, kind of modeled himself a little bit on Saddam Hussein in his style, in his presentation. But what about his personality? As a young Yemeni yourself living there, what sort of person was Ali Abdullah Saleh for you? How did he strike you? Ali Abdullah Saleh was a military figure. This is how people remember him. But he also presents himself as the person who understands Yemen. So he knows all of the tribes. He can bring competing forces together. He can go and meet uh, rivalries at the same time. And this legacy kind of accumulated with him being able to strike the unification deal. So it kind of cemented the idea that actually this is the person who can bring all of those rivalries and competing forces together and will be able to hold the country for the future. Now, in terms of his foreign policy, he wasn't appealing as very, I would say, convincing or very smart in how he was approaching foreign policy. I think that we saw that immediately. <laughs> Saddam Hussein invades Kuwait, all that business in the first Gulf War. I mean, Eamon, how did you experience the uh, initial unification of Yemen where you were in Saudi Arabia? Because Yemen played a certain role in events in the early 90s uh, in the Gulf. Well, I mean, I celebrated the union of the two Yemens because most of my uh, friends happened to be Hazaram in um, uh, Khubar. Hazaram, of course, you know, I'm sure Bara will know they are the people of Hadramaut from the south of Yemen. So they are the old emigres you know, of South Yemen. So when the two Yemens united, my Hadarim friends were elated, were very happy because now they will join their families in Southern Yemen. So it was amazing emotions, you know, but, but it all came crashing down so quickly. Yeah, I think that it's germane to this part of the story that at this time, there were something like, was it almost like two million Yemeni expatriates living in Saudi Arabia? Four, four. Four million. Four million Yemeni expatriates. Yeah. And that was going to play a big role in what happened next. Well, it did because, you see, sometimes there are many Yemeni families in Saudi Arabia. They actually, the most integrated immigrant community that really, truly integrated into the Saudi society. However, you know, this harmonious integration between the 4 million Yemenis who were living in Saudi Arabia, visa-free, freedom of movement, treated like Saudis, and the rest of the Saudi community came crashing down in 2nd of August, 1990, because the Arab world is full of stupid decisions, as we will see like you know, around us all the time. <laughs> Here we go. He's not pulling his punches right away. Okay, stupid decision. Yes. What was the stupid decision, Ayman? Yeah, so Ali Abdullah Saleh was torn between two things. His idol, Saddam Hussein, the one that he always aspired you know, to imitate, invaded Kuwait. And now he has a choice to make. Either stand with Saudi Arabia and the rest of the GCC countries, uh, since they are the ones who are the financial backbone of Yemen, or stand with Saddam who is his idol, the idol of Arab nationalism, you know, the second coming of Gamal Abdel Nasser. So, so basically he was torn between his heart and his mind. 
between his pockets and his principles. And he chose to follow those, you know, empty principles over the, a full pocket and decided, no, I'm going to side with Saddam Hussein. So, of course, if you side with Saddam Hussein, King Fahad of Saudi Arabia will consider your citizens to be a risk to the national security of the country. You can't have a quarter of the country belonging to a nation whose president is siding with a threatening, belligerent nation, which is Iraq. Okay, I'm actually going to do the unthinkable and defend Ali Abdullah Saleh in a second. But before what? I do that, Bara, Bara, <laughs> as a as a, a you know Yemeni yourself, when the Gulf War broke out, I suppose you can remember what were the feelings like on the ground, and were Yemenis broadly in favor of Ali Abdullah's stance to stand with Saddam Hussein? Ali Abdullah Saleh was able quickly, actually, to rally the public around him, saying that these GCC countries are inviting the Americans to invade the whole region, and we have no choice but to support Saddam. Now, saying that, there were many, many wise voices, I would say, in Yemen, and people don't know this, the biggest financial investor in terms of infrastructure in North Yemen was Kuwait. So the backing of Saddam Hussein didn't make any sense. It didn't make sense. I mean, there's another dimension, though, which I think is important to point out. So, you know, Saleh was in, in a tricky position to some extent. You know, Yemen, the newly united Yemen had joined this organization called the Arab Cooperation Council the year before. So this was Saddam Hussein's kind of like his GCC alternative. He was trying to put together something like that. Yemen joined it. And at the time, Ali Abdullah Saleh was locked in a dispute with Saudi Arabia about the border of where the empty quarter, about basically there was a border dispute between the kingdom and Saudi Arabia that was ongoing. And oil, which had been recently-ish discovered in that part of the country, was involved in this dispute. And Saddam Hussein had guaranteed Saleh financial and diplomatic support in that dispute. So he he kind of found himself, unfortunately, at the bad time, backed into a bad kind of cooperation corner. I guess he felt he had to do what he had to do. I mean, he because he wasn't a complete moron. He must have known it was a tremendous risk to back Saddam Hussein against like the world <laughs> who had come to defend Saudi Arabia. And yet, you know, I guess he he had to do that. What's interesting, I think, is that when he did that, he invoked Arab nationalist reasons, you know, as you would expect. Yeah, we Arabs have to stick together. We can't allow America to you know, to divide us. But also religious reasons. So early on, you know, there's a sense that Ali Abdullah Sal is trying to play all the different voices in Yemen at the same time. You know, a bit of Arab nationalism here, a bit of religious uh, revivalism here, <laughs> trying to sprinkle the rhetoric around to keep everyone on side. Anyway, Eamon, sorry, I, I tried my best to defend Ali Abdullah Saleh a bit. Nonetheless, you know, Eamon, the fallout was massive. Saudi Arabia, you know, expelled, what, 800,000 Yemeni laborers? Oh, no, more than that. The number was almost like one and a half million Oof. Yemenis uh, left. Well, with the loss of the um, the money that was flowing in from Saudi because of all of the Yemeni workers there, and also after the U.S. cut off all foreign aid to Yemen as a result of, of Yemen's stance with Saddam Hussein during the war, the Yemeni economy immediately cratered. It is amazing to think that 20% of Yemen's economy at the time was remittance-based, 
or you know, based on USA, that is a lot of the economy. And so when these Yemeni laborers were compelled to return home, the unemployment rate inside Yemen shot up to 35%. It was a massive economic collapse, really, certainly a challenging time to start a new constitutional experiment, a unified Yemen. So Saleh's decision to back Saddam Hussein immediately put the experiment in keeping Yemen together, keeping the two Yemens united uh, under a lot of pressure. And sadly, we don't have time to go into, into this in any great detail, but the upshot of that a few years later in 1994, Barat, was essentially uh, a civil war. So the 1994 civil war was a result of two main things. The first thing is the dissatisfaction of the course of the unified government established after 1990, the creation of the plural party system in which the Socialist Party, which was the ruling party in the South, lost the 1993 to become third in parliament after the GPC and Islah. So GPC, uh, which is an important sort of acronym, it's Ali Abdullah Saleh's party. It was like the ruling party of Yemen for decades, the GPC. And then this other party, Islah, we're going to talk about it in a second. It was a newcomer to the political scene and surprised everyone, certainly surprised the socialists of the South for winning the second place in the elections. So the, the socialists, the southern Yemenis were basically slapped across the face and they had much less power than they expected. Exactly. And then started the hesitation into going into the unification of the army units between the North and South. The leaders of the Socialist Party uh, started to say that Islah was playing with their internal rivalries. Now, if the listener would remember, in 1986, a faction, an important faction of the Socialist Party, flee from South Yemen and went into the North. The Socialist Party accused Saleh that he was playing that rivalry to weaken them. They were right about that. I think in a sense they were right. Yeah. <laughs> of course they were. <laughs> there, there will be many instances in this story that people accuse Saleh of playing sides against each other, and it's always true. <laughs> the second thing which provoked tensions was the assassination of a couple of Socialist Party leaders. And it accumulated into an assassination attempt on Ali Salim al-Bid, who's now the vice president of the unified Yemen, in which al-Bid accused directly Ali Abdullah Saleh of orchestrating. Saleh denied that, but the tensions rise to a point where basically both parties can't agree anymore. And in April 1994, civil war broke out, started with a massive tank battle outside uh, the city of Amran, about 40 miles northwest of Sana'a. And it was a proper war, like the South fired Scud missiles into the North. It involved the world, the US supported the North uh, and gave Ali Abdullah Saleh a lot of weapons. This was vital in the rehabilitation of Ali Abdullah Saleh's relations with the United States following the Gulf War. Saudi Arabia stood on the sidelines, actually didn't support the North as much as you might think, leading some observers to wonder if they were, in fact, 
not so in favor of a unified Yemen as much as they had been. So my point here, and we're going to move on, but the point is, is that there was a civil war in 1994 involving, you know, Amran capturing Aden, Southern separatism, the Islah party, which we'll talk about in a second, and the Saudis and Americans, by which I mean a lot of echoes of the present. And that's because Yemen is a very complex beast. And now we're going to do the unthinkable, my friends, and we're going to try to explain, and I swear to God, Almighty, we have to do this succinctly, okay? But we are going to explain <laughs> to the listener Yemen's complexities, political complexities. And I want to start by talking about the tribal makeup. Specifically in Yemen, there is a family, the Al-Ahmar family, who head a tribal confederation that is very important and that in Ali Abdullah Saleh's Yemen had a, an actual like constitutional role, more or less, because a prominent member of that family, Abdullah al-Ahmar, was speaker of the parliament. So very briefly, Barak, the al-Ahmar family and this tribal confederation, how is it that there can be a country that's like a republic with elections and stuff, but also have a tribal confederation with a semi-constitutional role? The Hashib confederation was very powerful due to the de decision of Abdullah bin Hussein al-Ahmar to back the republic in the 1960s. Oh, so back in the 1960s, remember, there was the whole Nasser right thing le leading to another civil war in the north. Exactly. Uh, where it was a, a question, really, whether this tribal federation would continue to support the imam or not. But uh, Abdullah al-Ahmar was convinced, no, to turn against the imam and support the republic. Exactly. But Abdullah al-Ahmar did one step further. He was the kind of key figure who convinced Saudi Arabia to recognize the new republic. So he had very, very strong ties with Saudi Arabia. And Saudi Arabia were interested in its national interest to work closely with the Yemeni tribes because that kind of gives them an ability to have a control over the situation, but also calm any tribal tensions that might occur in their southern border. I'm glad that you, you mentioned Abdullah al-Ahmar's links to Saudi Arabia and the important role that Saudi Arabia in the 70s, 80s, 90s, noughties, all the way up to now, <laughs> plays in, in being a party in that like weird dance, negotiating dance between all the different factions, particularly in Northern Yemen. And Ayman, what I'd like you to kind of tell the story of if you could, is the rise in the 70s and 80s, culminating in the 90s inside Yemen, of a kind of Salafization, to some extent, of the Northern tribesmen. First of all, you have to understand, Thomas, that the Salafization that happened in northern Yemen wasn't by design. It's just an accident of history. Because why? Many of these people, as I said to you, came to Saudi Arabia, you know, as laborers and professionals. And when they are there, they are going to pray in the mosques in Saudi Arabia. They are going to study. You know, their kids will study in Saudi schools. The curriculum is Salafi. The mosque preaching is Salafi, and therefore they will end up being converted into Salafism through slow integration. So Migbal bin Hajj al-Wadi'i is a name that every uh, scholar and researcher on modern history of Yemen should know. This name is important. I'm sorry, dear listener, it is a particularly tough Arabic name. If you don't speak Arabic, Migbal bin Hadi al-Wadi'i. Migbil bin Hadi al-Wadi'i. This is the guy we're talking about, a Yemeni who was actually born a Zaidi, I think. Is that right, Ayman? Indeed, he was Zaidi. Uh, most of the North you know, were Zaidis, but 
many of the people from uh, Damaj, you know, and uh, in, in Sa'da and Al Jof. And These are places in the high, very high north of Yemen. Yeah, where Bara come from. <laughs> so th- these areas started the slow conversion towards Salafism because Miqbal bin Hadi al-Wadi'i, you know, got a scholarship into the Islamic University of Medina. And the Islamic University of Medina uh, was a hotbed of Salafism. But anyway... He went back to Yemen and established with the funding and the blessings of none other than Sheikh Abdul Aziz bin Baz, who would then later become the Mufti of Saudi Arabia, you know, the uh, school of uh, Dar al-Hadith, Dar al-Hadith. And this is how the Salafist school in Yemen started to appear. But what's interesting for the wider story, and I'm going to ask you, Barah, because... You know, the Dar al-Hadith school in Damaj, very close to Sada, the capital of the high north of Yemen, the sort of Zaidi capital of Yemen, began to implement some, let's call them Wahhabi tendencies, including destroying graves, which was a classic Wahhabi move. So there were incidents of, of the Salafi, let's say these new Salafi, Yemeni Salafis, destroying Zaidi graves in and around Sada which began to provoke the Zaydis of that area. This is an important dynamic because it will eventually be part of the story that leads to the Houthi movement about 20 years later. But Barat, as a young northern Yemeni of Zaydi ancestry, I think your own personal life story reflects to some extent the switch from a Zaydi to, let's say, a neo-Salafi kind of orientation. Is that right? Well, two things I was taught when I was very young. The first thing is that my family were very, very afraid of me going to a Salafi mosque. The other thing is that the uh, Zaidi scholars decided that they need to double down on their summer camps, their schools, their teachings because of this new wave of Salafism that they feel is now a real threat to their kind of hardcore base in Sada, in Hajjah, in, in all of that northern, you know, highlands, which have been traditionally Zaidi. Now, from another sense also, from another side, the Zaidi school of thought was being heavily challenged even in school curriculum because what you've been taught is the ideals of the, the Republic. So it's against the imamate. It very much criticizes and demonizes the period of the imamate. So the Zaydis are feeling basically pressured from all sides. And I remember like in my upbringings, they say it quietly in our families is we're being scrutinized. We're being demonized. We are like the traditional Zaydi families. There is a war being waged against us. And it kind of plays into this, the idea of actually we need to start sticking together to what we originally are. We are Zaydi and we have to protect that. So as the Zaydis in the north are beginning to feel more and more set upon by a rising Salafi movement, there's another kind of development going on in the country, also Sunni in orientation and Salafi, I suppose, but associated specifically with the Muslim Brotherhood, which began to make big inroads in the country. And it's extremely complicated because that guy, Abdullah al-Ahmar, the head of that tribal confederation and the Speaker of the House, allied to Saudi, was also heavily influenced by the Muslim Brotherhood and worked alongside clerics like Abdul Majid al-Zandani, this guy who set up a university in Sana'a, very much influenced by Muslim Brotherhood ideas, to form 
1990, a new political party, a kind of Muslim Brotherhood, kind of tribal, kind of Salafi political party called Islah. Now, this is that party that in the 1993 elections won second place, surprising everyone. And Islah, the Muslim Brotherhood Party, let's call it, of Yemen, will play a big role in the events of the Arab Spring. And in fact, I don't want to talk about it more at this stage because we have to move on. And something else, you know, Eamon, you particularly, I'm sure, could tell us all sorts of interesting things is the rise of uh, Salafi jihadism in Yemen (laughs) at the same time. You know, so many Yemeni fighters participating in the anti-Soviet jihad coming back and in the 90s participating in the nascent al-Qaeda movement, the eventual emergence of al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula, terrorist attacks like the notorious attack on the USS Cole in Aden Harbor in 2000, really the first big salvo in what would become the war on terror. I mean, that is a big part of the Ali Abdullah Saleh era, the Salafi jihadist era in Yemen. The arrival of Salafism in the north ignited that, you know, sense of renewed pride in Zaydism. But in Sana'a and Ta'az and the urban areas, there is a new kind of Salafism. It was more of a practical Salafism, a Salafism that has been merged with the Muslim Brotherhood and ironically led by Abdul Majid al-Zandani. Abdul Majid Zandani is an interesting, absolutely interesting figure. So Abdul Majid Zandani, you know, who was a doctor uh, of all things, like I mean, he was a medical professional, but nonetheless, he came from a Zaydi family and he started to delve first into the world of the science of the Quran. And uh, through his research, started to get more and more close to uh, Salafist ideals from Saudi Arabia, you know, uh, talking to many Salafist activists and people who were involved with the Muslim Brotherhood also. So in the end, he formed Al-Islah, which was a big umbrella that was able to encompass the Muslim Brotherhood, who were the majority of the um, followers of the Islah, but also it was big enough to have sizable minorities of Salafist activists, politically active Salafists, as well as Zaydis. You know, there were Zaydis actually, like, you know, who were part, you know, of Al-Islah. Al-Islah is a bigger umbrella than we think. Whenever we always paint Al-Islah as a purely just Muslim brotherhood, it is not. It is far more complicated than that. As you said, Ayman, the Islah party means many different things to many different people in Yemen. So if you're from the north, north of Yemen, it's the umbrella, which is basically the political tribal framework of Abdullah bin Hussein al-Ahmar. If you're in the, in the central part of Yemen, in Taiz and Ib and, 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 and that part, it's more of the ideology, the Muslim Brotherhood versus the Salafist versus the socialist ideologies competing in central Yemen. In the south, it is this party that is basically an ally of Ali Abdullah Saleh who helped them to invade the south and get rid of the, uh, get rid of the socialists. So it depends where you are. It means something. So yes, so through a figure like Zendani preeminently, Salafi jihadism flowed into Yemen. Muslim Brotherhood-inspired political ideas flowed into Yemen. A general neo-Salafism spread throughout Yemen. And I think the main takeaway, at least one of the main takeaways here, is that the 80s and 90s and early noughties in Yemen, culturally speaking, 
were incredibly fervent. There was a lot of change going on. I mean, the, the cultural fabric of the country was was changing in response to all of these things. And, uh, you know, in terms of our <laughs> our main character, Ali Abdullah Saleh, sitting at the top on the throne there, you know, he found himself very deftly dancing on the heads of all these snakes. And by the, you know, by 9-11, say, you know, U.S. aid was flowing into Yemen because Saleh became a very important partner in the anti-terrorism global war on terrorism, which increased his power more, even though, you know, as everyone knows now, and certainly probably even then knew, he was playing all the sides and, you know, he, he had relations with al-Qaeda in Yemen and he, he would capture them in order to get some money from America and let them go to get more money from America. So he was playing all the games. And this was making him feel more and more uh, confident, more and more autocratic. While at the same time, all of this rising Salafism and Saleh's authoritarian approach was putting Yemen on a collision course with a new group of political actors rising in the far north, the Houthis. And we are now going to take a break. <laughs> and when we come back, we are going to talk about this new political player who, when it emerged on the scene in the early noughties, no one would have thought in 10 years' time they would take over the country and hold it nearly for a decade now. So after the break, we'll come back and we're going to hear all about the Houthis. Stay tuned. We're back. In the first half, we set out the Sunni stall of Yemen, if you like, the rise of Salafism in, in that country, the way in which uh, the president, Ali Abdullah Saleh, was able to capitalize on the new religious arrival on the scene to increase his power uh, and stay sitting pretty there in Sana'a, dancing on the heads of snakes. Meanwhile, in the far north, a new movement arose. Now, this movement is shrouded in mystery. Its early years are mysterious. I think we just need to admit this. Much is said about where the Houthis came from. Very little direct evidence is often proffered <laughs> to support some of these things. And so we are going to have to work our way towards the best explanation that we can of where they come from. Uh, and I think we need to start Barat with this guy, Badruddin al-Houthi. He was from the north. He was involved in the early 90s in the formation of a minority Zaidi political party, the Party of Truth, Hizbul Haq. So he was a politician, a Zaidi, involved in this growing Zaidi consciousness, political consciousness at the time. So Badruddin al-Houthi, as an important figure among Zaidi scholars, was against the core principle of the New Republic because he was against political pluralism in its essence. Yeah, so the, the new constitution of, of the United Yemen uh, introduced pluralistic democratic politics, political parties, you have elections, if you win the elections, you get power, etc. The traditional Zaidi ideal was aristocratic, theocratic almost, that there was a kind of, you know, there was, as we discussed in the previous episode, there was that class of Hashemite aristocrats whom God really had granted the right to rule northern Yemen. So the idea of democracy did not sit well with them or, as it happens, with one of their number, Badruddin al-Houthi. And it is important to point out here, Thomas and Barat, that 
الحوثي فاميلي كامز فروم ذا موست راديكال برانش اوف زيدي اسلام ويتش از الجارودي سكت اوف زيديز ذي ار فار مور كلوزر تو مين ستريم شيعه اسلام راذر ذان ذا اذر تو بريفلنت branches of Zaydism in Yemen, which is the Hadawis and the Salihis, and they are uh, far more closer to mainstream Sunni Islam. And even before the unification, if I'm not mistaken, Bedruddin's elder son Muhammad was involved already in this growing self-consciousness on the part of Zaydis who were feeling threatened on the one hand by rising Salafism, on the other hand still resenting their loss of inherited power as a result of the Republican movement. And he founded in a probably the late 80s, all of my reading, you know, it wasn't quite clear exactly when this was founded, a movement known in English as the Believing Youth. The Believing Youth started as a Zaydi revivalist movement dedicated to revive Zaydi school of thought in North Yemen mainly encouraging Zaidi families to send their children in summer breaks to their schools in North Yemen, mainly in Sada up in the north, to get Zaidi uh, Zaidi teachings. So there are a number of uh, important founders, Muhammad al-Houthi and his father, Badr al-Din. In addition to Muhammad Azan, this is a highly intellectual, respected, religious scholar in, in, in North Yemen and a couple of political figures who all combined to get together to actually say, we can do something like this Salafi school in Damaj. We can do something which is similar to what the Islah are doing in their summer, summer schools. We can create our own Zaidi revivalist summer camp that will revive the uh, Zaidi uh, school of thought. Now, Thomas, maybe you don't know this, but Muhammad Azan, the founder of the Believing Youth, was actually my teacher in high school. <laughs> I did not know that, Barak. Wow. Amazing. <laughs> you must have disappointed him so much. <laughs> and what happened after, after you graduated? Actually not. So Muhammad uh, Azan, I was approached when I was in high school by my friends to say, let's go and uh, in the summer to join the Believing Youth uh, summer camp. And actually Muhammad Azan was the one who discouraged me from going. This was later years because there were tensions that are beyond the surface that are rising between him and another important figure who's Hussein al-Houthi. Hussein al-Houthi. So this is Badr al-Din's other son. Muhammad al-Houthi was the older son. And then Hussein al-Houthi, very, very, very important. And in fact, this is really now, this is the main character, Hussein al-Houthi. He began to turn the believing youth movement and this growing Zaidi movement in a new direction, really led by him. Is that right? So what Hussein al-Houthi did is that he got inspired so much following his trips to Iran by the Iranian model and started to aspire more towards a Hezbollah militant model and saying, this is actually the solution to Yemen. Now, amongst the Zaidi scholars, there's this divide. From one side, there are those scholars who formed Al-Haq party and have been forced to actually come out with a public statement saying that they recognize the new republic and they no longer believe believe in the uh, divine right of rulers that should be tied to the descendants of Prophet Muhammad, in other words, the Hashemites. 
this is something that I think, I mean, Ali Abdullah Saleh more or less forced them to do this. I mean, he, he was involved to some extent in this decision to come out and say, no, 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 we do believe in democracy. We are happy with pluralism. He was involved in forcing them to do this. But Hussein al-Houthi did not like that. So Hussein al-Houthi and his father, uh, Badreddin al-Houthi, did not like that. And they kind of accused the Zaydi scholars of being hypocritical and not actually being true to their core beliefs. Now, at the same time, Ali Abdullah Saleh started funding the summer camps of the believing youth for one main reason, is that after 1994, he started to be wary of the growing influence of Islah in the north of Yemen. So what better to deter that is to have another religious rivalry that can be the counter or competitor of Islah in North Yemen. I mean, just to make this clear, Ali Abdullah Saleh in 1990 had supported the formation of Islah to help him crush Southern separatism. And then four years later, realizing, hmm, Islah is now very popular. They threatened me. He then supported a Zaidi revivalist movement, the Believing Youth, in order to counter Islah, which on the surface he was still the ally of. This is giving you a sense of Ali Abdullah Saleh. Exactly, exactly. And then later on, Islah lost the 1997 parliamentary elections, which made Ali Abdullah Saleh's party the dominant party in parliament. And that kind of created the drift between them even further. Let's stay with the Houthis now. Now, you mentioned Iran. You mentioned that Hussein al-Houthi uh, was inspired by the Iranian model. Now, this is really where a lot there's a lot of smoke, not a lot of fire, a lot of smoke. When and how... The Houthi family became enamored or in any way involved with Iran. You know, some things that I've read in the, in the academic history suggest that uh, during uh, the political squabbles in the mid-90s, Badreddin al-Houthi and Hussein al-Houthi were sort of exiled by Ali Abdullah Saleh, and they spent that period in Iran, where a zawiya for the Houthis, a kind of religious school for Houthis, opened in Qom in 1994. Does that tally with your intelligence, Eamon? Yeah. Well, you said there is so much smoke and no fire, but I do have the fire, the fire of intelligence. This is where <laughs> uh, things will get interesting. First of all, there is a picture in which someone high enough in a certain government uh, showed it to me of Hussein Badreddin al-Houthi wearing a military uniform, joining the Badr Brigade, in 1988, on the front line on the Iran-Iraq war. As early as 1988, as, as early 1988. as 1988. So during the Iran-Iraq war, I mean, dear listener, the Badr Brigades were involved on the side of Iran in the, in the Iran-Iraq war. These were Arab Shiites, some of them even Iraqis, who were fighting for Iran against Iraq. It was a quite a kind of controversial brigade because it involved a lot of Arabs fighting Arabs, which, which a lot of other Arabs found to be horrific. Exactly. So actually, the links between Hussein Badreddin al-Houthi and Iran goes back to the late 1980s. In fact, the first signs that Iran was happy to integrate the Houthis and their followers and supporters, the Jarudi Zaydis of Yemen, into the overall program for Iran in the region was in 1992, when actually the uh, Azawiyah al-Jarudiyah 
was established in the Hawza. Hawza is means the seminary in the holy city of Qum in uh, Iran, just near Tehran. And there they established scholarship for about 70. And then the scholarship started to rise and rise and rise. And this is when, you know, from 1994 onward, under the supervision of Hussein and his father, Badruddin al-Houthi, they started a program for military training. They realized that there is no point whatsoever in establishing a group like a Shabab al-Mu'min, you know, the believing youth, and it doesn't have a military wing. And of course, who is an expert in establishing a military wing for political movement? Iran, and specifically the IRGC, the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps. So they help them establish that slowly, gradually, just like they established Hezbollah in Lebanon and Hezbollah in Hejaz and Hezbollah in Kuwait and the Badr Brigade. They, in Iraq, they started uh, the formation. And from 1994 onward, all the way until 2002, the movement grew steadily, richer, bigger, and with far more confidence. And of course, it was arming itself to the teeth. A lot of analysts, a lot of journalists, for sure, perhaps let's say more pro-Houthi, they do doubt a lot of this narrative. I see no reason to doubt it at all. Eamon, obviously, I trust you. But also, it makes total sense, you know, that the Houthis would realize that if they were to have political power in Yemen, they would need a paramilitary wing is just standard practice. Every political faction in the Middle East has a paramilitary wing by this point, including Islah, the Muslim Brotherhood Party that they consider to be their enemies. So that they should do this makes sense, that they should look towards Iran to help them do it makes sense. You know, Iran had such great success with Hezbollah. They were having a new success with Hamas in in Gaza. Of course, they would do this. It makes sense to me. Barat, what do you think? There's a huge difference, though. So with all of the other political parties, they would encourage their members to join the ranks of the military. And then slowly, they become members of the either security apparatus or the military apparatus. And to a sense, they're kind of tied in the structure. While with this, this was very specific training a militant group outside the structure of the state. And the second thing, which is very important, which Hussein al-Houthi himself was a parliament member. But then because he detests so much the ideals of the republic, he decided this actually no longer works for me. So I'm going to start in this journey. And now I can tell you what I witnessed. So in high school, you would have active recruitment, people being recruited to go and join the summer camps. So in 1998, a group of tribal figures, including members of Saleh's own party, are warning him about the rise of this militant group. Now, my witness statement is I have my own high school teacher who told me actually that he traveled to Iran. He met uh, Khomeini, he met Khamenei, he traveled to Lebanon, he met Hassan Nasrullah, but he was in a basically a collision course with Hussein al-Houthi. He didn't like how Hussein al-Houthi was turning what is supposed to be a summer teaching school into a militant a militant group until they finally parted away because Muhammad Badreddin al-Houthi, who's one of the main founders, sided with his brother. And when the core ideal of the whole Zaydi school of thought is that the descendants of Prophet Muhammad do have the upper say, 
So eventually it, it sided with Muhammad al-Houthi and Hussein al-Houthi rather than Muhammad Azam because Muhammad Azam is not a Hashemite. <laughs> and that's your teacher. That's my teacher, exactly. Wow. Now, this is straight from the horse's mouth, honestly, bro. So you're saying your teacher, an ally of Muhammad and Hussein al-Houthi, who had helped them set up the Believing Youth Movement, told you that he himself had visited Iran, had met with the Ayatollah there, had visited Lebanon, had met with Hassan Nasrallah, the head of Hezbollah there. You just, so this is facts. You know this already by 98. This was just, and they're not, they're not hiding it from you at least. No, that's not. Uh, these are facts that were known to the, even to the uh, security apparatus uh, in Yemen. And that's why later on, Mohammed Azam was immediately arrested by, uh, by the Yemeni intelligence when the war started with the Houthis. How, wow. it's, it's really interesting. The other thing is also the Houthis were operating in a very isolated region of Yemen. So actually, this is not a place where you would have international spectators. But if you talk to the people of Sada, the sheikhs, the tribal leaders, the security officials, all of them were raising warnings, were raising basically red flags to Ali Abdullah Saleh. There is a militant group being trained and being sponsored by Iran, by uh, Hezbollah, and under the supervision of Hussein al-Houthi under this umbrella called the Believing Youth. And this is, we're talking now about early 2000s. Well, yes, I mean, I'm, my understanding is that, so having absorbed all of these Khomeinist ideas through Iran and having transformed the Believing Youth Movement into something more militant in an Iranian model, Hussein al-Houthi in 1999 went to Sudan to do an MA in Quranic studies there, where, ironically, he socialized a lot with Muslim Brotherhood members because Sudan at that time was a hotbed of Sunni radicalism. And so that kind of added to the general mix of his radicalization. Yeah. And he later on even, it was reported that he got his master's degree from Sudan, but then he destroyed it. He tore it apart because he said he doesn't need master's degree. He's now embarking in this new holy journey of creating this movement that's going to liberate Yemen and put it in the course where it should belong with the axis of resistance. So really that sort of combination of Khomeinism and Muslim Brotherhood meant that when he returned to Yemen in 2001, he was poised to launch his new and improved Zaidi militant group in a big way. And I think we can kind of uh, say that, that the Houthis as we know them today began in January 2002 when let's say for the first time, the mountains of Northern Yemen rang with that notorious and sort of very famous chant of the Houthis. What is it, Barat? <laughs> it is, Allahu Akbar, Al-Mawtu Al-Amerika, Al-Mawtu Al-Israel, Al-La'nata Al-Yahud, Al-Nasr Al-Islam. So this translates into Allahu Akbar, Allah is great, death to America, death to Israel, dam on the Jews, and victory to Islam. Very similar to the Iranian chant. Hussein al-Houthi actually then capitalized on the Iraq invasion to even encourage his followers to uh, join his militant group and trying to spread the message using the 9-11 events, using what happened in Afghanistan, what happened in Iraq to encourage more and more followers to join him. 
And at the same time, his oral teaching, so he, he basically delivered lectures. He, he wasn't a great writer, but those lectures were written down, were transcribed and, and collected into a, a collection known as the Malazam. Is that right? Yeah, exactly. So Hussein al-Huthi was not scholarly qualified, even in uh, according to Zaydi's standards. Yeah. What his followers did is that they collected his sermons and put them together in those malazam. And I mean, if anyone have read them, they are basically... Ramblings. But exactly. I mean, they're poor words put together, uh, nothing intellectual, nothing smart, nothing charismatic, nothing similar to what we know about the other religious scholars who actually used to do teachings and sermons. Okay, so now we've done the Houthis. People now understand what the Houthis are. 2002, 2003, this new movement up in the north, chanting death to America, death to Israel, etc. Let's switch back to thinking about Ali Abdullah Saleh. Now, the funny thing about Ali Abdullah Saleh at this point is he is not opposed to the movement, to the Houthis. He still thinks that they are a useful counterbalance to the growing Salafism in the country and in the north. He thinks that if he can keep the Houthis fighting the Salafis in the north by the logic of divide and conquer, it will help him control the situation. Now, this finally began to, to shift you know, after 9-11, when the U.S. begins to put pressure on Saleh to act against the Houthis. The U.S. government was aware of this movement. They knew it was going on. They certainly felt confident that Hezbollah and Iran were involved. And they were telling Ali Abdullah Saleh that it was extremely dangerous to have an armed Shia, essentially militant group, on the border of Saudi Arabia causing problems. And Ali Abdullah Saleh had to do something about this. It was made easier for Saleh when, after he began putting pressure on the Houthis, uh, the Houthis themselves kind of began withholding sending taxes to Sana'a, and they cut off the highway that connected uh, Sana'a, the capital, with their stronghold of Sada. So they were being quite aggressive against the state. And, you know, Ali Abdullah Saleh was not the sort of dude <laughs> to take that kind of behavior lightly. And so uh, he, he basically immediately responded in classic Wild West fashion by putting a bounty on the head of Hussein al-Houthi. He, he said, right, this dude's he's no longer in my favor. Let's kill him. And we're in the next episode, we're going to go into this in a little bit more detail because it plays out in what happens in the Arab Spring. But um, he sends his old friend and close political ally, a military commander called Ali Mahsan al-Ahmar, to the north, and he tells him, put an end to the Houthi problem. And this inaugurates six wars which Ali Abdullah Saleh, the president of Yemen, waged against the Houthis. That's six wars. You know, it always happens. You know, when war breaks out, like when war broke out in Yemen in 2014, 2015, everyone's like, oh, why is war breaking out in Yemen? But actually, just like when Russia invaded Ukraine in 2022, everyone's like, why is war breaking out in Ukraine? You know, war in Ukraine had broken out in 2014 and had been raging. War in Yemen between the Houthis and the country had been going on since 2004. Yeah, exactly. So the first war happened due to a, a very literally small incident when a security unit tried to remove a Houthi checkpoint in Sada. 
And Ali Abdullah Saleh was actually at that time coming from Hajj, from Saudi Arabia, along with a big convoy. And he saw after the prayer, chants, the flags of Hezbollah, the flags of Iran. And then he started to realize actually the warnings that he had been receiving from the tribal leaders, from the security officials are real and he needs to do something. And that small incident of removing a checkpoint quickly erupted into an open conflict in 2004, and that was the first one. And during that first war, a fairly momentous event occurred, for the Houthis at least, when uh, Hussein al-Houthi, who until now has been the big hero of the movement, um, is killed. Yeah, exactly. And his remains were taken to Sana'a, and Saleh actually refused to hand back his remains It was only after the Arab Spring that the Houthi family were able to get him back and give him burial. And that left a a stain amongst the Houthi followers that they have this, the the, the remains of their founder is being held by by Saleh. Each wave of aggression from Sana'a against the Houthis, each war in this series of six wars, increased the fervor of the Houthis, increased their battle hardness, increased their capabilities, increased their appeal to a growing number of people in the North, especially who identified or who um, were sympathetic to the Zaidi narrative, which narrative was becoming more and more apparent. So the second war was actually kicked off when the father of Hussein al-Houthi, Badruddin, gave an interview. Do you, do you, you must remember this, Barah. He gave an interview after his son's martyrdom, after Hussein's death, uh, very specifically uh, saying <laughs> that the imamate was a better period than the present. It was more Islamic compared to the Republic, especially because the Republic had ties with America, which meant that Ali Abdullah Saleh was compromised. This kind of thing, publicly stated by the grandfather of the Houthi movement, totally enraged <laughs> Ali Abdullah Saleh. So he launched another war against them. <laughs> Exactly. And not only that, he then demanded another public statement by the Zaidi scholars and which they were very happy to give, condemning the Houthis and saying that actually, I remember the, the saying of, of one famous, uh, one of them who later on joined the Houthis, he's saying, crush them, give them hell, burn them until the last one of them. Don't treat them like citizens because they desecrated the citizenship contract with the state. Now, in the midst of this back and forth and following Hussein al-Houthi's death, a new leader rose to take the reins of power over the Houthi movement. And this was Hussein al-Houthi's younger brother and like much younger brother, 20 years younger than him, born in 1979. So the same age as me. So we're talking 2004. I was 25 years old. So this guy, age 25, becomes the new leader of the movement, Abdul Malik al-Houthi, who is now, you know, de facto on the ground, the president of North Yemen, really, if you like. He is controlling North Yemen today. This is the guy, Abdul Malik al-Houthi, the leader of the Houthi movement since 2004. Now, Eamon, what strikes me about Abdul Malik al-Houthi is the similarities in his persona with Hassan Nasrallah. If we said earlier that uh, Ali Abdullah Saleh modeled himself on Saddam Hussein and the way he carries himself and the way he talks, it, there's no question in my mind that Abdul Malik al-Houthi models himself on Hassan Nasrallah 
the leader of Hezbollah. Did you see a resonance there between the two figures, Ayman? Indeed. I mean, he fancies himself to be the uh, second coming of Hassan Nasrallah, and he emulates Hassan Nasrallah. But in reality, it's like comparing a small fiat to a Bentley. There is a huge difference between the two. Just because you come from the same ideology, from the same school of thought, from the same axis of resistance, you know, yes, you try to imitate him, but you are a poor imitation. He is nowhere near Hassan Nasrallah in Hassan Nasrallah's appeal and clever play on words. But Abdul Malik al-Houthi, it must be admitted, is at least something like a decent battle strategist, a decent political strategist. He has had a lot of success in Yemen, including in those initial years when between 2004 and 2010, he led the movement as it fought war after war with the central government in Sana'a and did not lose, was not crushed in the end. What about you, Barai? So you're coming of age now during the Houthi-Sana'a wars. You're a young man. What was your understanding of what was behind the Houthis? There were two things happening at the same time. There is this notion and feeling amongst many, I would say, traditionally Hashemite families and Zaidi families that we are now- Like yours. Like ours, like we are the target. And that basically making people to being very sympathetic towards the Houthi cause. And there's a growing descent towards Ali Abdullah Saleh and his regime being very authoritarian, being crushing his opponents and, and, uh, and so on. But another important factor, the leadership of the Yemeni military started to have deep divisions. From one side, there is the newcomers into the military, uh, the new big figures, which are Saleh, his sons and his nephews. And then the old establishment, people like Ali Mohsen al-Ahmar and so on. And actually, more than anything, that contributed immensely into the rise of the Houthis. The leadership is divided. They're not actually encouraged to back each other in the battlefield. And to some extent, many, many military uh, Yemeni experts saying, actually, Saleh thought it would be a good thing to exhaust them because there was, this was basically will pave the way for his son. Uh, instead of facing a rivalry within the military. Yeah, let's just unpack that a little bit to make it clearer. So what is often alleged, and I think it's accurate, is that Saleh, deep down, was not interested in, in ending the Houthi movement. He wanted to take advantage of the Houthi militants to neutralize threats within his own military to his son's taking over the presidency of Yemen after him. Especially this guy, I mentioned him before, and we will talk about him more in the next episode, Ali Mohsen al-Ahmar, who you know had actually been a childhood friend of Ali Abdullah Saleh's, was very, very prominent in the military, had, had been his ally all along, but who began to indicate that he was turning against Saleh when Saleh was making it plain that he hoped that his son would succeed him as president. Ali Mohsen al-Ahmar did not like that idea because maybe he wanted to be president, because he had different ideas in general. It's understood that he was a bit Muslim Brotherhood affiliated at times, so maybe he had different ideas in general. The point being that Ali Abdullah Saleh sent Ali Mohsen al-Ahmar, his ally, up to the north to fight the Houthis in order maybe to just get him killed, to neutralize his power so that he would fail and that it would he would have egg on his face. And this is what really underlay Ali Abdullah Saleh's strategy there. And as we reach the end of this episode, <laughs> we have to, in a way, leave it there. So 
by 2009-2010, Ali Abdullah Saleh reached the, the final war against the Houthis, a war, in fact, you know, Eamon, in which the Saudis intervened with a bombing campaign because the Houthis had begun to, to attack them. Isn't that right? Indeed. I mean, the Houthis started to shell the mountains of Al-Khoba and Jezan, and that angered the Saudis so much that they started intervening on the side of the Yemeni forces. But it was a short-lived, you know, conflict. And this last round of conflict with the Houthis is what basically broke the relationship between Ali Abdullah Saleh and Ali Mohsen when the Saudis informed Ali Mohsen Al-Ahmar that they received intelligence from Sana'a to bomb several Houthi locations in Sada. And actually one of the locations they received via Ali Abdullah Saleh was the location of Ali Mohsen Al-Ahmar. <laughs> that is a plot twist that would rival any Hollywood screenplay, honestly. Ali Mohsen, because Ali Mohsen had close relations with the Saudis. So they, that's probably why they told him, because Salah was like, um, uh, guys, I think, yeah, uh, the Houthis are here and here. Oh, and could you also bomb uh, this location here? <laughs> um, don't don't look too closely at, at what's happening there. And they look, and it's Ali Mohsen Al-Ahmar, so they call him. Uh, Ali Mohsen, you know that your boss and old buddy, <laughs> the president, uh, Salah, in, in, in Sana'a, he's just uh, told us to kill you. And so the fractures within Ali Abdullah Saleh's uh, regime and his ability to dance on the heads of snakes to keep the military factions, the tribal factions, the sectarian factions, the geographical factions, and the geopolitical factions all happy was about to come dramatically unstuck. And that's where we're going to leave it here. We'll be back with our dear friend Barat, whose eyewitness testimony will only go up in the next episode, I promise. And of course, as always, my friend, our friend, Eamon Dean, uh, intelligence master extraordinaire, to move the story onwards when Yemen experiences the earthquake known as the Arab Spring, leading really directly to the terrible civil war, which still is rocking that sad country. So stay with us. We'll be back uh, next time. A reminder that you can follow the show over on Facebook and Twitter at MH Conflicted. And for a deeper dive into all the subjects we talk about here on Conflicted, head over to Facebook and search Conflicted Podcast Discussion Group. There you will find other fans of the show engaging in heated debates, enlightening conversations, and just generally geeking out over Conflicted-related topics. Conflicted is a Message Heard production. This episode was produced and edited by Harry Stott. Sandra Ferrari is our executive producer. Our theme music is by Matt Huxley and Tom Biddle. <laughs>